Welcome to Hour 3 of the Jason Rand Show. Once again, Josh Hammer filling in today for Jason. Grateful, as always, for the opportunity. If you like what you hear, you can go ahead and check out my own show, The Josh Hammer Show, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. So we've got a number of compelling interviews lined up for you as we get into Hour 3 of the program. But before then, just a brief word on something that we only alluded to earlier and it's something that is very much still trending, very much still trending for tragic reasons. It is this horrific fire in Hawaii where now over 100 people have died. It is one of the greatest disasters, one of the greatest natural disasters in in, in modern United States history. If I'm not mistaken, I think it is the deadliest wildfire in, in over a century. And there's a lot of questions to be asked here. There are a lot of questions to be asked. First of all, this has all the makings thus far, at least, of Joe Biden's Hurricane Katrina moment. If you recall, George W. Bush had the flyover New Orleans situation. He says George W. Bush said he didn't want to, he didn't want to take away. He didn't want to detract from police presence on the ground when they were so needed. It makes sense to me. But the left, you know, if you recall, Kanye West said George W. Bush hates black people. I think it was Kanye West. I mean, the whole thing went viral. It was very much a, a bad situation there. So this has all the makings of Joe Biden's Hurricane Katrina moment he had the no comment where they asked him for a comment on why he said no comment he's taking forever to get his butt out to hawaii there and man the whole village of lahaina destroyed that was a former seat of the kingdom of hawaii horrible 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 stuff you know we learned just yesterday cbs news reported that maui's emergency operations chief had no background in disaster response and it was his department that was responsible for setting off the warning sirens which didn't go off they rang silent you know, charlie kirk yesterday showed to the world a man by the name of m kaleo manuel who was the hawaii's water official who refused to actually release water resources and instead let private landowners fight the, Ma the maui fire he seems to be like a total wokester. There's a video clip of him saying, quote, Native Hawaiians treated water as one of the earthly manifestations of a god. We become used to looking at water as something we – all this just woke crap. And earlier today, it looked like Hawaii officials were defending his decision to not use water earlier. But so many questions to be asked. But the left the left has a dog-ate-my-homework-style one-line answer for all that happened in Hawaii, climate change. That's it. To them, this is all about climate change. It has nothing to do with the warning sirens not going off. It has nothing to do with water not being used. To the left, it also has nothing to do with the fact that the energy company did not de-energize the power lines, thereby preventing a spark that almost assuredly caused the fire, notwithstanding the fact that we knew that there would be hurricane-force winds throughout that part of Maui. Why did the energy company not sap the power from the energy lines? Well, some plaintiffs now are suing the energy company for failing to do exactly that. But the left has none of this. To them, it is all about climate change. The same way that anything and everything, whether it was the wildfires in Canada earlier this year that had those horrible hazy days in New York City and elsewhere, it's the one-size-fits-all answer for the left. Climate change, climate change, climate change. It becomes intellectually lazy, frankly to just resort to this one talking point over and over again. It's a way for them to escape responsibility, frankly, for how they have handled themselves and just to permit, in this case, other actors like the energy company to escape responsibility. It's, it's really terrible stuff. Your heart just breaks again. 
oh, just so many people have died there. But we are going to keep on following that story there as well out in Hawaii. Again, um, hoping hoping for good news there. But good news does not necessarily seem to be coming, at least now. The response has just been so, so, so painfully, painfully slow at the local level, the government level. Man, I mean, I, 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 one of my best friends, I mean, just on a personal level, his brother lost his whole home and lost his whole home there. I know I, I know other people have lost their whole home too. One of my good buddies was, was honeymooning there. Had to fly out early just, just to escape it. These images are just galling, galling stuff, and the government at every level has not exactly covered itself in glory as they have tried to respond to the very real needs there of the local Hawaiians on the ground. Again, we're going to keep on following the story. This is not the last you're going to hear on the Jason Rand Show about this horrific wildfire out in Maui. But we're going to turn now to some interviews that we have conducted here. First, we're going to hear from Kurt Schlichter, Town Hall Senior Columnist, on the debate next week. The interview. Joining us now is Kurt Schlichter. Kurt, in addition to being a popular tweeter that you all should follow, is a senior columnist at Town Hall, a trial attorney, and a retired colonel, and also just a all-around good guy. So, Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you said that people should follow me uh, because apparently a lot of people are very angry that I'm telling them what I think, but they don't like. So <laughs> such, such is the nature of political punditry in the year 2023. But, Kurt, w- w- the reason I wanted to bring you on here, we talked about next week's very important, uh, dare I say, crucial Republican presidential primary. We talked about that earlier in the program. You, you've written a couple of columns just this week about this. Uh, first, you were kind of pushing back on the notion that Ron DeSantis can win. You had a column entitled, Can Ron DeSantis Win? And then just earlier today, you had another column, Of Course Trump Should Not Debate. So uh, talk to us about what you are expecting in this first debate next week and also what you're hoping for. Well, look, I, I make no secret. I think Ron DeSantis has the best chance to win the general election. I, I still think he has a very good chance to win the primary, but that's not a done deal. There's no such thing as a coronation, despite what Donald Trump and his fans think. Uh, and if Ron DeSantis wants it, he's got to take it. Uh, that being said, uh, this, this debate's going to be important, but it wouldn't be important for Trump. Look, Trump's in the lead. He's hovering about 50 percent, which is you know, supporters think is great. I think 50% for a former president, I think that's terrible. You know, why isn't he 80 or 90%? And the reason is because uh, many, many Republicans realize that he is, uh, you know, absolutely doomed in the general election. 53% of Americans, and that's the actual number uh, that came up in one of the many polls this week, uh, irrationally hate him and will never vote for him. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, nominating Trump is basically conceding the election to, uh, Joe Biden, which, uh, I don't want to do. All I want to do is win. I want to be clear when I say he's certain to lose. I, what I'm saying is really 85% chance. Sure, like of course. Lose. There's always a long shot, but you know, do you know any rich guys who have consistently bet on long shots? No, you don't because they're long shots. <laughs> Okay, I don't want to get lucky. I want to get good. And I know what Napoleon said about generals. I'd rather have a general who's lucky uh, uh, than good. But, you know, good makes luck. And 
I think Ron DeSantis uh, uh, really needs to uh, perform at this debate, I, and I think he understands that too. I, I agree with you. I think that he understands the stakes of this debate. But you know, Kurt, you, you alluded to this. I mean, I saw the same number that you saw about how well over half of Americans say that they ha- have no intention and no plan of what they plan to support Donald Trump, according to the poll that you and I both saw this week. But one thing that you mentioned in your "Can Ron DeSantis uh, Still Win?" column, which I think is a thing that or just a a data point, frankly, that too many on our own side are just not paying attention to. You know, there is a distinct possibility that Donald Trump is is actually in handcuffs and in prison at some point before the November 2024 general election. And that that is unjust. I mean, this is obviously political persecution. It's lawfare. It it is all of those things. One hundred percent. But you and I are both attorneys. I mean, these are these are trials. I mean, like this is this is this is how it works. It could happen. I think it is more likely than not that it will not happen. But it could. And I look, I, I think the consequences to these uh, frame jobs and, and all, all, all four of them are essentially the equivalent of framing him. I mean, just to, you know, somebody today had a Kurt, uh, you know, you're on this show, Kurt, uh, you're on attorney. What's your legal opinion? I don't have a legal opinion. These aren't legal proceedings. Yep. Because I do real legal proceedings. I go to federal court. I've argued in front of the Ninth Circuit. I, you know, I'm working on, you know, when I'm not talking to you, Josh, I'm, you know, working on, uh, you know, billing 24/7. Um, this, these bear no resemblance to actual law. They are uh, expand. They are expansions of laws that are meant to do other things. Uh, to to somehow find something that they can at least plausibly uh, when you get the right liberal judge pursue against Trump. I mean, the the, the time when you uh, break new legal ground uh, with a criminal charge that has never been brought before and, and also has not been brought against people who did exactly the same thing, you know, within recent memory uh, is not against the political opponent of the uh, chief of the executive branch that is leading the prosecution. Okay, so this is this is absolutely horrible on every level. No, it's it's star chamber stuff. But the point yeah. is, the point is that we can't discount the possibility no, that I, I mean, no matter no matter how unjust it is, that uh, the overwhelming favorite yes. at this point to win the Republican nomination could actually be. In prison, I mean, like that is that that is something that is but possible. Even if he's not, you know, they, look, normal people out there have not accepted the fact that the country that, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, but the country I grew up with is dead. Uh, at one point, there was a general consensus that you can't be corrupt, and that stopped, starting with uh, Bill Clinton, when the the ruling class and the regime media uh, started excusing the left. And now they're to the point, I mean, 2016, they began literally manufacturing false claims against Donald Trump. They literally made up stuff uh, while letting real stuff like Hunter Biden and, 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 you know, that desiccated freak in the White House go. So but (laughs) but normal people who are just living their lives, taking their kids to soccer, you know, going to punch in the clock, still think that America is a, a, a free country with the rule of law. And, you know, they go home, they watch CBS with, you know, FBI, you know, the new Avengers or whatever. Hell, the FBI shows, there's 20 of them. Uh, 
and they think, oh, well, these are the good guys. They're, they're not the good guys. They're the bad guys. But the, the default for the mass of Americans is that the, the justice system has some relation to justice, which it demonstrably does not. But that inertia makes them think, well, you know, Trump's charged four times. There's got to be, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, not if it's all bull. You know, it, it pains me to kind of go full doomer on the rule of law stuff because, you know, I clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. I mean, like, I, I live this. I mean, like, this is painful stuff to yeah. say. But, I mean, if you still have faith in the quote-unquote justice system at this point, I'm not. I'm just not sure what planet you're living on, frankly. I mean, I mean, how do you kind of well, just uh, – I live in California. You know, normal people can walk into – or, you know, criminals can walk into a store and walk out with a basket of uh, stolen stuff, and no one will try and stop them because they know why, – why am I going to – you know, what am I going to get videotaped uh, and get my life ruined trying to stop this idiot? He's not going to get prosecuted. Uh, but if, you know, if you use a weapon to defend yourself against one of these people, you're going to get charged. Yeah. This is bad, and it, it – it, 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 it will work for a while because it's shocking, and it's so shocking that people don't want to accept it. I mean, it's took, taken us a while to become viewers. Yeah, totally. No, I but, mean, but but now we are, and I and I don't say this does not mean don't continue lawfare and fighting in the courts. You you have to do that. But the 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 fact is, the you know, the country I served for twenty seven years as a military guy. You know, I swore to hold the Constitution. I was prepared to die for it. And now I see these people uh, treating it like a San Francisco hobo treats the sidewalk. <laughs> well, couldn't have painted more colorfully than that. There well, well, Kurt, I know that you and I are both very excited for, for next week's first debate. Thanks for your excellent yep. recent columns on this. So once again, Kurt Schlichter, senior columnist at Town Hall. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Interview. Joining us now is my buddy John Cardillo, former NYPD police officer and a conservative commentator. So, John, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Josh. So, John, I, I, given your background in law enforcement, want to get your take on just the latest of these Trump indictments, this one in the state of Georgia pertaining to the infamous phone calls with Brad Raffensperger in the aftermath of the 2020 election, all of that. I, I guess to me, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this, John, I mean, you're a former NYPD, you're a law enforcement guy. The the invocation of Rico here in particular kind of just got my mind reeling a little bit. And, you know, so much of Trump's behavior, of course, uh, pertaining to Raffensperger in Georgia is disgraceful. It's it's really just awful conduct. But what, what's your take on, on RICO here specifically? I mean, that's kind of an organized crime mob statute, really. Yeah, it started that way. You know, look, it, let's talk about Trump's behavior for a second, right? I mean, I, like many others on the right, believe that these prosecutions are contrived. I mean, it, it, you know, the word witch hunt is applicable. I don't think it's hyperbole. But man, Josh, does Trump make it easy for him? Yeah. I mean, he knows they're coming for him and he doesn't shut up. He makes snarky comments on recorded lines that can be interpreted either way. He calls guys like Raffensperger, who he knew wasn't a fan of his, and really just pushes and pushes and pushes to the line. So he gives them everything they need to make his life miserable, and unfortunately, the lives of people who merely worked for him. So now you've got people out there being indicted who are just doing their job. Following the orders of a former president, I spoke to uh, one of those indicted alongside him in Georgia, and they told me they can't even find a law firm that will represent them unless they come up with a minimum, minimum $350,000 
initial retainer. Wow. So this is bankrupting people. But, uh, you know, the RICO statute is an interesting call here. I, I assume her, her premise, which is what it typically is, is that he brought all these people in and they engaged in a conspiracy to try to either flip election results or really more in this case, it looks like the crux of her charges are obstruction of governmental administration. And the fact that that was done with co-conspirators for something that would ultimately benefit Trump, right? So that's essentially when you charge RICO. It's, so you charge in the mob for say, uh, you know, garbage cartels, private sanitation cartel, right? Somebody's <laughs> right. making a lot of money at the end of that. There's some personal gain in it. So they loop all these people in. I think that's how she's looking at it. The problem for him is she's applied that statute twice before in significant cases and she's been successful. Yep. It's a really hard statute to be because it's so, I mean, you know this, I mean, you're a lawyer and I'm a really good one. It's a really overbroad statute, yeah. and they can bring a lot of things into it. So out of everything you see, I think the New York case is junk, all right? I never saw charges like that, and, I, and I've said this uh, on air before. It would be – you know, they charged him, I think, was 34 or 38 uh, counts for the same payment because there were 38 payments. I mean that would be like me arresting a guy for armed robbery. He stole $1,000, and I charged him with 10 counts because the clerk counted out 10 $100 bills. Yep. So the New York case, I think, gets tossed by the New York State appellate court system. They tend to be less political. Uh, the federal cases could go either way. I wouldn't be shocked if you had a hung jury here in Florida because of the makeup, uh, demographic makeup and political makeup of both venues where that trial could be held. It was going to be in Miami. Now it's up in Fort Pierce. That's a pretty evenly split county, St. Lucie County, in terms of blue and red. And so I think his likelihood of a hung jury there is just pretty good. But who knows? Uh, I think D.C. is going to be problematic, and it could take years to go to SCOTUS. But Georgia seems to have some teeth because of the way she charged this. Where where my concern is for uh, about Georgia, in terms of Trump being able to get away with this one, or a portrait of words, but being able to uh, get an acquittal, is that it appears that Raffensperger, the lieutenant governor, the governor Kemp, and other Republican officials gave the state evidence against him. Wow, a lot of their testimony, I, I'm starting to believe in the grand jury is what led to the indictment. So it's going to be hard for him to say, well, this was a biased prosecution on behalf of Democrats if three-star witnesses, and we don't know yet, but if three-star witnesses turn out to be elected Republicans. Yeah, if you, if, you, if you have the Republican governor, lieutenant governor, or secretary of state all against you in what is already a hostile proceeding in a very blue county with a prosecutor who seems hell-bent on, on locking you up, that, that's that's not great. I think it would be an understatement here. And, you know, John, you were actually the first one really to put the Georgia case on my radar many months back because many of us were so interested in, in Jack Smith as on, on the federal level. You know, a lot of times these federal investigations tend to crowd out the local ones. But I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've kind of come around to your view, I think, that this Georgia one really is the most potentially dangerous for any number of reasons, one of which is the fact that if he is convicted – and again, there's a very blue county. Who knows what the jury what, what the juror pool looks like here? But if he ultimately is convicted, th there's no out card. There's no escape card here because the president cannot no. pardon, no matter what you hear. The president cannot pardon for, for state crimes, and the, the governor actually can't do it either. It's a very complicated pardon system in Georgia. So, I mean, is, is this the case most likely to see Trump in handcuffs or in prison before November 2024, you think? I mean, if it were going to happen, yeah, because like you say, you know, Georgia is very unusual. See, in Florida, where, where we are, for example, in Florida, if you uh, you could bring a clemency case to the clemency board, the governor sits on that board. So there's the ability to lobby, although Ron DeSantis has been pretty tough on crime. There hasn't been much success with people going, but at least that process exists in Georgia. It's pretty draconian, Josh. I mean, uh, you, you, you have to wait five years until after you serve your sentence. So, so there's no situation with, with like a Mike Flynn or the other guys who are charged by Mueller where a pardon can come before they ever 
have to report to prison or, or parole or probation. The federal government, the president was able to step in and, and, and preliminarily or, or uh, preemptively issue those pardons before they ever spend a day in jail. Can't do that in Georgia. You have to serve your sentence. You have to wait five years. Then you have to apply to this really antiseptic abstract clemency board. And they deny far more applications than they ever hear. Now, the likelihood of them denying an application of the former president is, is pretty rare. But still, I mean, it, it, there's no preemptive strike for the prosecution by lobbying the governor or anything like that. They've made this a pretty absolute system in Georgia where you you may get a pardon down the road. You might get your rights back, your record clean, but you're serving your sentence first and you're carrying that conviction for five years. Yeah, no, I, it, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult situation and incredibly thorny one. And like you said – the former president. I mean, to be clear, I, I agree with you. Of course, these these prosecutions in totality totally amount to political persecution, modern day Stalinism. All all of that is totally true. But man, John, to your to your point, the former president sure does make it easy for his political opponents to. to he wraps it up. <laughs> he gives them a bow, a nice red bow on top, really pretty wrapping paper, and he hands them everything they need. It's it's remarkable. But look, Josh, you and I have had these conversations offline. That's why good lawyers keep quitting. Good lawyers no longer want to represent him because of his designated internal point people, people like Boris Epstein. You know, white collar criminal defense is a very intricate, specific discipline, right? I mean, it's, it's just not something everybody does. I always liken it to, you know, orthopedic surgery. You're not going to go to the best heart surgeon to fix your knee. It's a very specific discipline right. that requires tons of experience. And, and having a guy like Boris Epstein as your internal legal point man is just ludicrous. It's, it's, it's suicidal. In terms of of your reputation and your career and your potential freedom, and so I think he's going to have a tough, tough time in Georgia because he's having a hard time finding good representation anywhere these days. And I, I would assume these legal bills for four uh, cases, ninety one counts, four indictments, ninety one counts in four jurisdictions, it's got to be looking at three to four million a month in legal right now. Man, yeah, you know, look, I mean, some of the. Others indicted in the Georgia case are, are some mutual friends of ours, John, folks like Jen Ellis, yeah, and I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that all turns out well for them. But as far as the former president himself, you know, I, I do fear that he he could be in for for a world of hurt potentially when it comes to Georgia. But I guess I guess time will tell. So, J John Cardillo, thank you so much for joining the Jason Ranch show tonight. Anytime, Josh. Good to talk to you. The Jason Ranch Show. Here to react, Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Ranch. And the rise of soft on crime laws and policies have made it worse. Our man in the Pacific Northwest, Jason Rance, is on that. And you keep on bringing her these extraordinary stories from Seattle. It's amazing. Long form. Sorab Amari, the founder and editor of Compact Magazine, who has a brand new book out this week, Tyranny Inc., so we hope you enjoyed this interview with Sorab about the rise of corporate tyranny in America. So, Sorab, you're intimating there one issue that I know you're you're very passionate about, which is this notion of of private sector labor unions, which you mentioned Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill. You know, these even these classical liberal thinkers were not per se opposed actually to private sector labor unions. Public sector labor unions is a more complicated story for sure. But when did the right just totally throw private sector labor under the bus and how can we start to make inroads again with private sector labor unions? I think that's a key question that I don't have very good answers to, frankly. Too hard. Very good. So uh, just to return to what we spoke about, uh, we said classical liberalism, state leave the market alone, neoliberalism, uh, market remake the state in its own image. So what came in between, what came in between was in Europe was called the social democratic or Christian democratic order and what was in the United States called the New Deal order. And it addressed the, the crises of 
you know, pure liberal capitalism, which were real enough, right? Because uh, wages were kept so low that workers couldn't afford their own goods. And so that created a demand crisis in the United States that actually made even the, put the wealthy even uh, sort of on, in crisis. Um, the way the New Dealers mainly addressed that was by enacting the, the National Labor Relations Act, otherwise known as the Wagner Act, and the Fair Labor Standards Act, or the FLSA. The Wagner Act is the most important component. What it did was, where hitherto the U.S. government had said it was in some ways actually hostile to private economy unions, thenceforth, Congress actually said we're going to encourage private economy unionization and collective bargaining. The idea is not much actually different than than antitrust uh, uh, enforcement, right? In the in the classical model, many many sellers compete with each other, and many many buyers compete with each other as well, and that creates the supposed tension that creates equilibrium in the market and and ensures that you know uh, no one actor can uh, can put one over other other actors. Um, and again, laissez-faire types are, are prepared to use state power to, to break up monopolies. In some markets, though, we've realized, especially the labor market, and especially in oligopolistic situations where there's only a few buyers of labor, meaning employers, and many, many sellers of labor, workers going up against them, any individual worker is pretty powerless, right? It's a relative uh, bargaining power issue and they're much, much weaker. And because there's always someone who's more desperate willing to work for less, uh, that gives the employers enormous unjust coercive power over workers. So the, the New Deal empowered workers to team up together when going up against buyers of labor power or employers. And this is called countervailing power. The idea was that um, instead of the competition just being on one side of the market among sellers or among buyers, we would bolster competition of sellers going up against buyers. And so that's the, sort of the simple idea behind countervailing power, which I think in my reading is at the heart of the New Deal. And the result was, you know, we can get into why that situation came about or why it didn't last. But the bottom line is that the New Dealer New Deal order created, you know, roughly three decades of broad prosperity, lots and lots of things that your parents and grandparents came to take for granted, like, you know, more limited working hours, uh, vacations for workers, healthcare, retirement, etc. These hallmarks of working class life came about during that time. And it was definitely a very, very innovative time in the American economy. So don't don't listen to people who say, oh, it's stolid and stale. No, that's when we had the nuclear age. That's when we had the atomic age and so on, which you can see portrayed in the movie Oppenheimer. So that's the idea. So how did we how did we lose it? Well, um, it basically neoliberalism came right, around. Right. Um, and, um, you know, gradually... Neoliberals, by the way, there were complete fringe figures in like the 1940s, right. 50s and 60s, Hayek, et cetera, were all seen as like crank. Even business uh, leaders were believed that this New Deal model was like that's how the serious consensus way to do business. But then in the 1970s, then that model hit some crises, which I think are exaggerated. Like many of them resolved themselves. The oil issue just went away by the 1980s on its own, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them could have been reformed. But the point is that it was not this sort of epoch defining crisis that people define it as. Anyway, 
that opportunity of the crisis of the New Deal order gave an opening to first Carter and then Reagan in the United States and Thatcher in Britain to really tap into these ideas of the new liberals, which hadn't gotten better with age, like, you know, fine wine, but they just fit into a moment in a very uh, auspicious way for them. And the result, especially on the right, is a Republican Party that's pretty remained very hostile to labor unions. And that's pushed labor unions further and further into the arms of the Democratic Party so that you know, in, in the 1970s, Nixon was competitive on the labor vote. But today, you know, very few Republicans get um, uh, labor endorsement. But the fundamental logic of labor unions has not changed, you know, since the time of the New Deal and countervailing power. Right. I, I mean, I mean, just to be very blunt here, there, there was nothing inherently problematic whatsoever inherently with the idea of a private sector labor union. Again, this goes back to the most rudimentary of all economic principles about, about collective bargaining, when it, which is necessary when you have countervailing powers. You just described again, Smith, Mill, all these classical liberal icons had nothing whatsoever ideologically against private sector labor. The problem that that I have, there's been a lot of solid intellectual work done. You or in has. A lot of ha- others have done really good work trying to kind of recover this tradition that the right has not always been reflexively hostile to private sector labor unions. But, you know, then when I try to look at who's guiding a lot of these private sector labor unions, you know, these people kind of want me in gulags, it seems like many times. And not always. And to be clear that, you know, that it's kind of self-reinforcing and it, it kind of takes us down this kind of feedback loop. So I, I struggle with how to get us out of this feedback loop, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I, I give lots and lots of examples in the book of, you know, flagrant abuses of working people in this country. Uh, you know, you know, this one very well is the abuse of commercial arbitration in the workplace, something that was meant for, bar, you know, merchants of relatively equal bargaining power right. has been expanded to the workplace where if you have a grievance against your employer, you can't sue them. Uh, you have to go through this privatized court where the corporation basically sets the rules and it's not rational for you because it's much it's much more expensive to go through the process uh, than whatever it is that you seek to recover so by barring you from class actions it more or less means that you can't seek justice at all to be made whole um just to give one example and you know frankly i mean it's very one of the big disappointments of the trump administration was that it backed private arbitration to the hilt um including you know obviously Justice Gorsuch, but also the Solicitor General of Trump and the, and the Department of Labor. Um, so then, then Republicans wondered, like, why is the Democrat? Why is big labor so attached to um, the Democratic Party? Well, it's because it's always gotten, it's often gotten the back of the hand right. from GOP. But there's no reason it has to right. be that way forever, you know. For, because it is bad for labor too. That because right. if if labor is so dependent on the Democratic Party, then it's not independent anymore, and it can't exert independent pressure. Right. right, it gets pushed around by the Democrats. So, like as my friend Michael Lynn points out, if you go to the home the Twitter page of the head of the AFL CIO right now, or at least for a long time, the top pinned tweet was something that said like. You know, labor means maximum abortion rights. I can't remember what the exact wording is. But, you know, if you think about it, lots of the people who are the rank and file in the AFL-CIO don't share that view. They might not be pro-life the way I am, but they don't want, like, you know, abortion in the ninth, you know, month of the pregnancy. 
But why do they have to put up with a, with the Democratic left? Because they know that at least they'll get something from them. Yeah, you know, from. you know, actually, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but when you're talking here, the no, ex- no, no, yeah, the example that I think of, and it's kind of a provocative example, but I know you're probably going to agree with it, is I'm thinking actually of a Russia situation. And let me kind of play that out a little more. You know, a lot of kind of neoliberals, kind of foreign policy establishment types um, say that, you know, Russia is 1000% to blame here. And to be clear, obviously, the majority of the blame does lie with Vladimir Putin. He has invaded another sovereign country. All of that is true. But on the other hand, looking at a global stage, you know, what has the United States bipartisan foreign policy establishment done consistently since the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, they've given Russia the back of the hand and sought to expand NATO ever and ever closer to the Russian border. Right. So it's kind of this whole back of the hand. You're going to you know, go right into your into your enemy. It's, it's, it's a similar dynamic. And I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback to that in the comments section. But but it, but but, it, but it's OK. Cause I think it, I think the analogy does hold. So, Saurabh, let's let's take it back to the book here. And, you know, one theme that I have been emphasizing a lot in my writings and commentary over the past few years, which I know is a commentary and knows a theme that you have as well, especially being the former New York Post op-ed editor at a time of the Hunter Biden laptop fiasco, is this notion of, uh, you know, what I've referred to as the collapse of the private public distinction. We basically kind of get this one blob where where this purported distinction between state action and private action, which really is the whole theoretical undergird for neoliberalism that you have this very sharp divide between the public and state action and 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 private action on the one hand this divide before our eyes has really collapsed and on the tech issue in particular a lot of folks on the right i think are starting to intuit that but the way they frame the big tech objection stills oftentimes in in liberal terms and liberal phraseology such as kind of infringing speech and things like that so are you optimistic about kind of a lot of these themes because you're obviously going way beyond speech and i think the right should go way beyond speech towards things like what we're talking about here collective bargaining countervailing power are, are you optimistic about this broader trajectory or do you fear that it might stop with kind of more liberal paradigm based complaints in the tech space in particular uh i'm, I'm a little bit down right now about that <laughs> stuff i've just seen it for so long right i was as you know i was in the thick of the hunter issue and i was like well here we go section 230 reform right or not to get into the weeds but just just defang the power of a few oligarchs whatever their ideology might be whether they agree with me or they don't to to be able to sort of dictate who can be a person online and who can't. You're now going to listen to a snippet of an interview from the episode of my next show coming out next week, The Josh Hammer Show. We have here Arya Lightstone, who is a lead negotiator in the U.S. Embassy to Israel during the Trump administration. He helped orchestrate the Abraham Accords. Let's listen to what he has to say about what comes next for those peace treaties. You know, this notion, we hear a lot about the term the Arab street, this kind of term that gets floated around foreign policy circles a lot. And the idea was that, you know, if, if God forbid, if the U.S. has the temerity to move its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the proverbial Arab street would melt down. You know, Hamas would go on a rampage, Hezbollah, all of that. And it's worth underscoring that none of that happened. I mean, precisely none of that happened, in part because Trump's foreign policy kind of helped ensure that that these actors knew that there would be serious repercussions if they were to act. But, you know, it's worth underscoring that notion, which is that when the U.S. acts and when it, you know, most importantly, when it acts not from a place of weakness, but from a place of authority where here we are, this is our policy, you either like it or you don't like it, but we're going to do it regardless, people will listen. <laughs> people will will tend to fall into line on that. But 
I'm happy you mentioned the Saudis there as part of that very interesting story on the flight from Riyadh to Jerusalem because the Saudi issue is where I want to to, to go next. So this has been the million-dollar question uh, over the past, not just past year, I mean, really ever since uh, the end of the Trump administration, early Biden administration. You know, I had, I had heard from some folks uh, inside the Trump administration, some, some of whom told me that if, the, you know, if Trump had been reelected, then Saudi would have probably joined the accords within the first six months of the Trump second term. You know, I, I wasn't there, so who knows, but that's what I've heard. And here we are, and we're, you know, we're almost three years now after the Emiratis and Bahrainis were there on the White House lawn, and Saudi Arabia, which is really the most important country for many reasons in the entire Arab world, is not formally a part of the Abraham Accords, but but the Biden administration seems to be interested, I, I, I'm emphasizing seems, to be interested uh, in trying to pull Mohammed bin Salman into the Accords. They've uh, Anthony Blinken and others have been over there and in Riyadh, Jeddah, trying to kind of sweet talk uh, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. On the other hand, Arya, as you and I kind of have discussed off, off screen, the administration continues to have this horrific flirtation with the Iranian regime. So what are your thoughts on the prospects for the Saudis joining the Accords within this administration or potentially in the next administration? Well, I think the number one thing that happened three years ago on August 13, 2020, the lexicon of the Middle East changed and it went from will countries ever make peace to Israel with Israel to when will countries make peace with Israel? And the answer to that is very simple. And and this is what, what Michael uh explain in his peace and foreign policy in which you articulated, which is, look, every country is going to do what's best for them as a country. So Israel should do what's best for Israel and the United States of America should do best what's best for the United States of America. And frankly, Saudi Arabia needs to do what's best for Saudi Arabia. That's the job of the crown prince and the king. When the Abraham Accords were not resoundingly supported by the next administration, it, by the Biden administration, it became clear that this was going to be a partisan, unfortunately, a partisan circumstance. And the question is, how does peace pay? Well, if countries joined the Abraham Accords to get close to the United States of America, but the result based upon the administration was not greater closeness to the United States of America, well, other countries around the world, including Saudi Arabia, are going to look at that and say, wait a second, what's going to happen if I join the Accords? And so therefore, you can look at that in two different ways. You can see the Saudis saying, look, I want to make peace with Israel. Maybe the time's right. Maybe the time's not right. Ironically enough, if I make peace with the Saudis, it's more likely to have if I make peace during the Biden administration, excuse me, it's more likely to have bipartisan support than if I make peace during a Republican administration. So ironically enough, there may be a calculation going on that direction. Now, where the U.S. is concerned, you said with the U.S. flirting with Iran, I don't know. If I flirted with a girl and gave her $6 billion, I would assume that she would think that we're fully married. $6 billion is a real dollar amount, and $6 billion is a real ransom payment, and $6 yeah. billion is um, 24 times what the Iranians spend on their nuclear program annually. Wow. That money will go to kill people. They are the largest purveyors of terror in the region. And the only deal that's been done in the last three years in the entire region was in between Saudi Arabia and Iran brokered by China. Yep. So when the U.S. leaves the region, it's not filled by Costa Rica. That vacuum of power and influence is filled by China and Russia and now Iran. And that's a disaster. I'll just paint sort of one picture of what will happen when Saudi Arabia joins the accords, because they will join. And I hope I hope and pray that they'll join it for the right reasons at the right time with the correct um, motivation. Because 
if our number one foe is China, which I believe that it is, <clears throat> and we need to compete against them, right now China has in their sphere of influence Russia, Iran, and now partially Saudi Arabia. So that is the energy that it would take to supply the entire world. If the United States of America expands the Abraham Accords under either administration, but does it fully and not as a transaction, but does it as a, I'm building a new Middle East. If you can imagine from Oman and UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, to Jordan, Egypt, and Israel, unlimited land, unlimited uh, job opportunities, unlimited energy supply, unlimited economic resources, and unlimited technology. If we want to be able to have a force, a wall, against Chinese expansion and Iranian hegemony, as you described it, the Abraham Accords is the answer. And so we need to be all in for that, whether it's with the crown prince of of Saudi Arabia or with the Sultan of Oman. It needs to be all in. So the... And point well taken, by the way, about the six billion dollar payment, which um, you know comes uh, comes on the heels of the Biden administration's attempts to try to rekindle the the JCPOA, the first Iran nuclear deal. I guess time will tell whether or not this ransom payment, which you are accurately describing it, I should say, as a ransom payment, you know, time will tell whether or not that is separate from kind of a rejuvenated Iran nuclear deal or or part of kind of the the reemergence of that deal. Um, sorted stuff, certainly either way. So the basic outlines of the Saudi joins the Abraham Accords deal, if, if, I, if I kind of remember the basic contours of this correctly, is that the U.S. would agree to kind of a, a, a NATO Article 5 style security blanket commitment to the Saudis. They probably have the Iranians in mind here, the Saudis, if I were guessing. And Saudi also gets to have its own civilian nuclear program. And then some sort of amorphous, ill-defined concessions, whatever those may be, from the Israelis to the Palestinians, which kind of brings me back to August 2020, when I think Netanyahu said that he would not uh, incorporate some parts of Judea and Samaria into uh, is, is Israeli civilian law. The quote-unquote annex um, was a term used by the mainstream media at the time. Does that strike you as a good deal for, for the relevant actors, the the contours of that deal? Or, or what are your thoughts on kind of the, the outlines of that possible deal? So I, I, this is what's been publicly reported. I don't know any more than that, which has been publicly reported. I think you have to bifurcate this into two things. Uh, President Biden wanted to make the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, a pariah. That's what he said. Yep. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a very important country to the Middle East, to the Muslim people, and to the United States of America. Making one of our friends into a pariah is not a good strategy uh, from my perspective in any circumstance. And we need to repair that relationship. If Saudi Arabia starts trading oil in the yen and falls further under Chinese influence, that's a terrible thing. If Saudi Arabia is endangered because of the Iran deal that the Obama administration and the Biden administration wants to continue, that's a terrible thing. So could the United States of America provide one of or all of those things in exchange for a better relationship with Saudi Arabia? The United States of America should consider that very strongly. We should never be in this situation. All of these are undoing mistakes that we made. They're not own goals. They were they were we actively played against ourselves. This wasn't accidental. These were all purposeful made decisions by the Obama and Biden administration vis-a-vis Israel. Here's how we looked at it was we're closer to Israel. We're going to stand with Israel. And because we're standing with Israel, other countries are going to want to become part of those accords. And once you're 
have a relationship with Israel. So now all of the conversations that were previously off the table can now be on the table. But I don't think it makes sense to pre-negotiate what a deal should look like. First, make peace with Israel because peace makes sense. And then let's talk about how we elevate our relationship. Does the U.S. need to replace this, uh, repair the Saudi relationship anyways? Yes, let's have that conversation. Don't make, don't make the Abraham Accords a transaction. I think that weakens them. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Josh Hammer, once again, filling in on the Jason Rand Show today. Grateful to have your ear this afternoon. We'll see you next time.